are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach Old and New Testament theology and church history at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. It's been a wonderful time of year to celebrate our Savior's birth. If you have benefited from listening to Understanding Christianity, I would ask a favor that you would give us a positive review and rating. Share this on your social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Parler, other places. Get the word out if you found this helpful. I appreciate all my listeners and those that contact me and email me with questions. Um, Hopefully you find the content that I provide on this podcast beneficial. And so on this podcast today, this has been a long podcast in the making. I've spent a lot of time over the past few weeks trying to dig into some original source material to try to help us as Reformed theologians truly understand the provisionist view of the nature of grace. It seems like there's a lot of confusion out there as to what the provisionists believe about the nature of grace. There's been a lot of mislabels and mischaracterizations and things like that regarding what Leighton Flowers and others who are in his theological camp believe about grace. And so what I want to do in this podcast is just ask the question, what is grace? What is grace? Is is God's grace merely an offer that can be accepted or rejected? Grace is offered to sinners Or is God's grace his active, sovereign, and unconditional favor that's actually conferred or granted upon elect sinners? Is God's grace effectual and irresistible or merely a prevenient or enabling grace? So let me just tell you what I understand. If, you've, if this is your first time to listen to the podcast, uh, I've been dealing with the provisionists. They used to be called traditionalists for the past five plus years. I've been interacting with them. But let me just tell you what I understand the Bible to teach, that the Bible teaches because of man's deadness and sin and total inability, God must actually overcome that spiritual condition with sovereign, efficacious grace that's more than just the gospel appeal. There must be a mysterious, instantaneous, internal work of the Holy Spirit directly on the soul of fallen people. The mind, will, and emotions must be changed inwardly by sovereign means in order to make a person willing to come to faith in Christ. In other words, the grace that is both necessary and sufficient is an irresistible, conquering grace, not a mere offer, or simply the presentation of the facts of the gospel. Now, I'm going to hopefully accurately represent the provisionist side on this. But let me just give you a couple definitions, what I, what I think are some good definitions on grace. Uh, both of these come from William Hendrickson in his um, commentaries. One, he's commenting on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and he gives a really good definition of grace. He says, quote, Grace is God's favor toward his people, which results from his kindness and of disposition and which manifests itself in their deliverance from guilt and punishment. On God's part, this favor is entirely sovereign and unconditional. On man's part, it is completely unmerited. I like that definition. 
He also, on commenting on Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he also says this, God's grace is his active favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserve the greatest punishment. So active favor, sovereign, unconditional, it's actually God's favor. It's not an offer of grace that's merely offered, but it's actually God bestowing sovereign grace upon his people. Now, I want to interact with some statements made by the provisionists in regard to Reformed theology, some false assertions, I think some, some misdefinitions. I was listening to Leighton Flowers a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about um, Arminianism, and he was interacting with the Arminian view of provenient grace. And basically, I think Flowers wrongly defines total inability. He, he defines it, I don't think, the way we as Reformed people would understand it. Here's the way, at least in that podcast, that YouTube clip. Now, maybe uh, he would have a better definition, but I'm just interacting with what I heard him say. Basically, he defined total inability as the inability to believe the claims of the gospel. Total inability is the inability to believe the claims of the gospel. Now, that's not the full definition, because that view only sees conversion as assenting or agreeing with the claims of the gospel. There's no mention there of actually repenting and trusting in the person of Christ. It's more believing in the claims of the gospel, not actually trusting or or converting or turning towards personal faith in Christ. So when you misdefine the issue from the beginning and just basically say total inability is the inability to believe the claims of the gospel, well, then you can attack the straw men that's not either Calvinistic or Arminian definitions of total inability because Calvinists and Arminians both start at the same place with really the same definition of total inability. You can listen to some other podcasts I've done about that, but when you start with that definition, I think it's a misdefinition. So the issue is not the inability to believe the gospel. The issue is the inability to repent or come to faith in the person of Christ and inability to be willing to believe in Christ alone. And and he often makes this claim that unsaved people can understand the claims of the Quran when presented to them. They can understand facts in a historical textbook. They can understand uh, the claims of an uninspired book like the, the Quran. And so therefore, he concludes that unsafe people should be able to also understand the claims of the Bible because the Bible is not um, just some mere textbook. It's an inspired God-breathed revelation. And we would agree with that. So the issue is not the intellectual comprehension of a set of facts or truth claims. That's not the issue with inability. Our definition of total inability is not your inability to understand the claims of the Bible. The issue is deeply spiritual and moral in nature, not merely intellectual or a lack of information. So an unsaved person can assent or agree with or understand the claims of the mere gospel appeal and yet still hate the truth, suppress the truth, and be dead in sin. That person's still in bondage to sin. He or she's still dead in trespasses. Even though he or she can understand the claims of the gospel, they cannot repent and believe 
in Jesus. Grace has to be granted, actively granted or bestowed upon the the sinner, not merely offered. Now, here's the issue. Okay, we need to understand this. All evangelicals believe in some type of prevenient grace. Let me say that again. All evangelicals believe in some type of prevenient grace. Now, what do I mean by prevenient grace? A grace that comes before salvation. That's not the argument. The argument is not, is there prevenient grace? The issue is, what is the nature of that grace? What kind of grace is needed that comes before? What's the nature of that prevenient or coming before grace? And how is that grace actually given? So provisionists would argue that in the fall, humans have not lost the mental capacity to understand truth. They haven't lost the mental capacity to understand truth. Again, that's not our argument about total depravity or total inability. An unsaved person can be confronted with the truth. They can have the mental capacity to understand the Bible. They can understand the claims of the truth. But yet, because it's a moral and spiritual condition, they can continue to suppress that truth because they love the darkness and hate the light. They are hostile in mind to God. The reason an unsaved person does not believe in Christ is not because they didn't understand the claims of the gospel. They refuse to believe the truth and be saved. But why? What is the root cause of this refusal? Is it libertarian free will? They had the choice to refuse that truth when it was presented to them. They could merely stop suppressing that truth when the truth was given to them. They had the libertarian free will to choose one way or the other. Or is it deeply spiritual and moral inability? So we need to ask the question to our provisionist brothers and sisters. How pervasive is the corruption of sin? Does original sin in any way incapacitate or hinder an unsaved person from trusting in Christ? Now, I got an answer when I listened to Leighton Flowers on that YouTube clip where he was interacting with the Arminian view. He said something similar to this. I don't have the exact quote, but I wrote it down as I was listening to him. He said something like, our corruption hinders us and it makes it difficult to believe in Jesus We have some sin we need to work through in order to believe. So he does agree that the corruption of original sin hinders us, makes it difficult to believe in Jesus. And so I have a follow-up question. How much of a hindrance is that sin? To what degree is that sin difficult? How much sin does one have to quote-unquote work through in order to believe? And what does it even mean for an unregenerate person to quote-unquote work through some sin issues? How can he or she who's unregenerate work through some sin? So what they have a problem with, the provisionist, is the Holy Spirit doing what they would call an unmediated, internal, mystical work of grace directly on the soul of a person. They would say that the Holy Spirit's work is mediated by the gospel appeal as an external word preached to the person. Now, they would say that 
the gospel appeal is the primary Holy Spirit-inspired way that God moves to enable a response. God can do other things through dreams and visions and things like that, but they would say primarily, the primary way that God overcomes this inability to understand the truth claims of the gospel is to present the gospel truth. And once that gospel truth is presented as an external word, a spirit-inspired word to the person, that person now has the ability to either stop suppressing the truth or accept the truth. There's not an unmediated, internal, direct, mystical work of grace in the soul of a person. So, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4-5. through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, Paul makes a statement here that the gospel did not just come to them in word only, but there was something beside the word that came. It was the power and the Holy Spirit in full conviction. So we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean by it didn't just come in word only, but there was an accompanying Holy Spirit and power? So what the Reformed understanding is, is when the gospel is preached, when the gospel comes to you in word, there is something unique and supernatural that happens that no preacher can manufacture or control. Genuine conversion. There's something supernatural that happens. The Holy Spirit comes in power to bring life. So it's the Word and Spirit. The Word comes externally through the preached gospel, the gospel appeal, but in addition to that external preached Word, there's an internal work of the Spirit in power directly upon the soul of a fallen sinner to bring them to life, to grant them faith to resurrect them to new life, to cause them to be born again. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, let me interact with the provisionist because the distinction here, because the provisionist is going to say, I agree with you, I agree with you, Sean, all the way. The spirit does give life. The Holy Spirit does come in power. But the distinction is, is how? How does the Holy Spirit give that life? How does the Holy Spirit come in power? They agree that the Spirit has to give life. But they view this life-giving power and the Spirit coming as the Spirit-inspired message that gives life. The Word of God preached is the sufficient means to enable a response. Now, notice the difference in terminology. In our view, the Spirit does an inward work to bring to life a spiritually dead person who's unable to come to life on their own. What they would say is the gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a response. So let's ask the question, is enabling a response the same thing as giving life? Let's just ask that. Is enabling a response, a libertarian free response, enabling that response, Assuming that there was some type of inability there before, but once the gospel bill comes, now you're enabled to respond positively. Is that the same thing as the Holy Spirit coming in power and giving life? What does it mean to give life? Does it mean to grant an opportunity to use your free will to believe the claims of the gospel? Is that what it means? Or does to give life, 
or to come in power? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit must do an actual work of grace to grant that life? Not just an opportunity for you to live if you believe, but to actually give life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, I know what the provisionist is going to be saying. Sean, we agree with you. The, the, the Lord has to make people alive. The Holy Spirit has to give life. But the way we define how the Holy Spirit does that is markedly different. Now, in this Ephesians passage, Paul doesn't mention the means by which God makes us alive. There's no qualifier. He doesn't limit it to the gospel appeal or to hearing the word preached. It's basically, in this passage of Scripture, it's a unilateral making alive with no mention of the means of how God does that. Now, in other passages, we do see the means being the word preached or the gospel appeal presented. The words I give to you are spirit and life. The, the gospel came to you not only in word only, but in the power of the Spirit and with full conviction. Now, let's go back to that Thessalonians passage. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and the power of the new birth to lost sinners when the gospel's preached and then puts that deep and full conviction in their hearts and minds to solidify that that message is true and that Jesus is real. So it's not just an external word only, the gospel appeal, but there's inward persuasion that the Holy Spirit brings that the gospel's true. And only the Holy Spirit can do that when the gospel is preached. So when we get together with our provisionist friends and we ask the question, okay, how does the Holy Spirit bring conviction? They would say, it's through the word. It's through the law and the gospel, the word preached. And we would say, amen. But we would take it one step further as Reformed and even as, as Arminians, but let's just stick with Reformed. We take it one step further and say, the gospel appeal alone is not enough. There needs to be an internal direct working of the Spirit on the heart, mind, and will of a fallen sinner to actually do a work of grace to overcome that total inability. John Stott, commenting on this passage, said, words by themselves are seldom enough. This is even more the case in Christian communication, since blind eyes and hard hearts do not appreciate the gospel. The references to the internal operation of the Holy Spirit. It is only by His power that the Word can penetrate people's mind, heart, conscience, and will. Internal operation of the Holy Spirit. So really, we're talking about internal versus external means. The provisionist would say external means of the gospel appeal is sufficient to enable a response. And we would agree with that to an extent. There has to be the external preaching of the gospel, that's the primary means God uses to call sinners to salvation is by the gospel appeal. But in addition to the gospel appeal, that's not enough. There needs to be an internal working of the Holy Spirit directly on the heart, mind, will, and emotions that are fallen. Now, F.F. Bruce, great New Testament scholar, claims on this passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians that this deep conviction is a deep inward persuasion of the truth of the gospel, a token of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts, more impressive and more lasting than the persuasion produced by spectacular or miraculous signs. Again, a deep inward persuasion. 
Again, commenting on this passage, Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, he says this, The carnal mind has got such enmity toward God, the unconverted sinner is so dead in trespasses and sins, the natural man is so stupid in divine things, that there must be the work of the Almighty Spirit, quickening, enlightening, and making willing, before the sinner will cleave to Jesus. Now, the provisionist would say, once the gospel appeal is given, that's enough to enable a response. Libertarianly, you can choose positively or negatively. If you choose to cleave to Jesus, if you choose to trust in Jesus, then the Almighty Spirit will come and enlighten and, and regenerate and give you life, but you believe first. Now, let's just ask some questions for the provisionist related to this whole giving life, bringing conviction, the power of the Holy Spirit. Why does the Spirit have to give life? Why does God have to make a sinner alive? Why does the gospel have to come not with word only, but with the Spirit's power? Why are these operations of the Spirit needed in addition to just the word only? Is it merely an external word only gospel appeal that's the grace? Or is it a supernatural internal change? Is that the grace? That's the key difference. If the Holy Spirit has to give life and bring conviction and do an internal work, that assumes that there's deadness, there's inability. If God has to make a sinner alive, it assumes that they're dead in trespasses. If the gospel has to come in words and the power of the Holy Spirit, that assumes that the gospel appeal is not enough, but there needs to be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The difference comes in the nature of that grace and power and the definition of inability. Again, Let's not mislabel the provisionists. They believe in grace. Don't call them Pelagian and say they don't believe in grace. They do believe in grace. It's just that their understanding of grace is way different than our understanding of grace. They'll say something like this, and hopefully I'm accurately representing a provisionist. A provisionist would say something like this. Just because the Spirit has to give life doesn't necessarily mean that a spiritually dead person can't admit that they're dead and ask for the Spirit to grant them life or to confess their need for the Spirit's power. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's got to come and, and, and do that work, but that doesn't mean you can't admit that you need that work done, and you can't ask for that work to be done. Again, is confessing your need to be saved, or assenting to the claims of the gospel, is that true conversion? This is a, a difference between the Reformed the theology and, and Provisionist theology. Their idea of conversion that I've heard them say is you admit your need, you admit that you're a sinner, you assent to the claims of the gospel, then you're saved. Where we would say, yeah, you have to assent to the truth, but you also have to place your faith in Christ alone, not just merely admit that you have a need. Do we just need to admit that we need help? And I've heard them use this illustration like an, an addict, like an addict can admit they need help. An addict says, listen, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. I'm going to go check myself into a rehab to get the help needed. So they equate that to the spiritual condition. 
we're like a spiritual addict. We're, we're addicted to sin. We can admit that we need help. We can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves, but we can admit we need help. And so we go check ourselves into rehab to get the help needed. So there's still grace. We can't help ourselves, but we can admit our need for help, and we can admit ourselves into rehab. So you're still an addict when you enter rehab. You have, you have to go through a process of detoxing in which you cooperate. In other words, you can choose to walk out of that detox if you want to. There's no fundamental change in your addiction from the moment you admit you're an addict to when you check yourself in. And once you're in rehab, you can still choose to cooperate and get better by taking the proper steps. So that illustration really breaks down because it looks at conversion more as a process. You're just kind of admitting you need help. It just kind of breaks down. Let's take the illustration of spiritual deadness. An unregenerate person who's dead in sins can admit, this is the provisions view, they can admit that they're dead in sins. They can admit they're in bondage to sin. And once they admit that, then they use their free will to quote-unquote check into God's rehab of salvation, where he then changes them, but based upon their choice to want to be changed. And it's not an instantaneous radical inward change of regeneration, but more a long and cooperative effort to detox from sin with the possibility that you could lapse and never get better. So that... um, illustration really breaks down because conversion is not admitting you have a need like a rehab you know like an addict going into rehab we believe there's something deeper than just admitting that you have a need there has to be an internal work of grace to make a person willing to come to faith in christ because they're not willing nor are they able let me just deal with augustine for a moment because augustine's writings against pelagius again If you go back to the original sources, um, Pelagius in his work on grace and free will, on grace and free will, where he's interacting with Pelagius's argumentation, um, Augustine writes some very interesting things. Now, before I do this, I'm not, hear me very clearly, I'm not accusing provisionists of being Pelagian. And I'm not necessarily accusing them of being semi-Pelagian. I really don't know if I can put them in that camp because their view is so different than what Arminians, Augustinians, Reformed, Calvinists, what, we've all kind of started at the same starting point of total inability through spiritual deadness and bondage to sin. The real question is, how does God overcome that? The provisions don't start there. But you find it interesting that the same arguments that Augustine gives against Pelagius, you can learn some things about maybe the provisionist understanding. So Augustine writes this. He says, Neither knowledge of God's law, nor nature, nor the mere remission of sins is that grace which is given to us through our Lord Christ, but it is the very grace which accomplishes the fulfillment of the law and the liberation of nature and the removal of the dominion of sin. So what he would say, this is key to the Pelagian controversy as to the nature of grace. What Augustine would argue, whether you agree with him or not, whether you consider him a Manichaean or a proto-Gnostic or whatever, I I mean, that's up to you to, to, to understand that. I'm just telling you that historically, 
Reformed theology has come from the stream of Augustine's teachings. So Augustine would say that grace is not mere knowledge of God's law that comes through the gospel appeal to be reconciled. But grace is actually the liberation of the fallen nature that rescues a person from dominion of sin. Do you understand that what Augustine's saying there? He's saying because people are dominated by sin, because their nature is in bondage, it has to be liberated, it has to be freed. So something has to come and do that. A grace has to come and do that. Not just give you knowledge of Christ or God's law or a gospel appeal. There has to be something inward to actually liberate you from the dominion of sin. He also condemns Pelagius' belief, and this is a quote from his work there, that grace, although it is not bestowed according... This is, he's quoting Pelagius here. So this is Pelagius's, Pelagius's words quoted by Augustine. Quote, grace, although it is not bestowed according to the merits of good works, is yet given according to the merit of the antecedent goodwill of the man who believes and prays. Okay, this is very important to understand Pelagius. Pelagius did not deny the need for grace, as some people might characterize, at least according to how Augustine quotes him here. And surprisingly, According to this quote from Augustine, Pelagius did not see that humans somehow merited grace by any good work. But notice the nature of the grace that Pelagius argues for. God gives grace to those who by their free will first or antecedent believe in Christ. The libertarian will of fallen man is antecedent to God's grace. In other words, according to Pelagius, God responds by giving grace to those who believe first as opposed to the reform view that regenerating grace precedes faith and actually causes the faith. Now, if you go back to the works of B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, um, I've got the complete works of B.B. Warfield, and he's got a whole section there on the church fathers, uh, Tertullian and Augustine, and he he deals pretty extensively with the uh, Pelagian controversy. And so let me just kind of quote to you what B.B. Warfield, uh, some comments he makes about Augustine's theology of grace. This is from B.B. Warfield, quote, Spiritual grace includes, no doubt, all external help that God gives for salvation, such as the law, the preaching of the gospel. But above all, it includes that help which God gives by his Holy Spirit working within, not without, by which man is enabled to choose and do what he sees by the teaching of the law and the gospel to be right. Very, very important statement there. The provisionists would agree with the first one. Spiritual grace includes, no doubt, all external help God gives for the salvation of sinners, such as the preaching of the gospel. Provisionists, amen. But they would stop there and say, that's sufficient. The external help God gives is the preaching of the gospel. That's the grace. But then B.B. Warfield, commenting on Augustine's view of grace, says, no, it goes beyond that where the Holy Spirit has to do a work within to enable a man to believe. There's got to be not only the external word preached, but an internal work of the Spirit. Now, I want to take a journey through church history. And I mean, we already dealt with Augustine here, and, but I want to start with Calvin and kind of move through um, history and look at some voices from history, look at the Reformed Confessions. And I want to go all the way up to what 
uh, traditionalists or provisionists have written currently within the past few years about the nature of grace. So again, this podcast is on the nature of grace. What is God's grace? The provisionist view versus the reform view. So let's, let's go back to John Calvin and um, in the Institutes. This is in book two, chapter three. John Calvin writes, the apostle's doctrine is not that the grace of a good will is offered to us if we will accept it, but that God himself is pleased so to work in us as to guide, turn, and govern our heart by his spirit and reign in it as his own possession. So Calvin would say grace is not just offered to you. You can accept it, reject it. It's a mere offer, but God has to work in us to overcome that inability to guide us, to turn us through the Holy Spirit. So for Calvin, grace is not an offer that we can choose to accept or reject. Instead, God's grace is an active work within us by the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts to faith. Now Calvin goes on to write, Moreover, this is clearly demonstrated by the nature and dispensation of calling which consists not merely of the preaching of the word, but also of the illumination of the spirit. Okay, so we're making a distinction here. Again, what do the provisionists say? The grace is merely the preaching of the word, the gospel of appeal. A gospel appeal. Calvin says that's, that's good. That, 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 that's what grace consists of, but not that alone. It has to have the illumination of the spirit. Now, the question I want to ask a provisionist, and maybe they can help me understand this, is what's their definition of illumination? What's their theology of illumination? What is it? Is illumination merely understanding the content or the facts of the gospel externally? So illumination would basically be synonymous with the gospel appeal. In other words, when the gospel appeal comes to a sinner that gospel appeal brings the illumination that was not there before. So illumination is synonymous with the gospel appeal. Or is the illumination an inward work of the Spirit on the heart, soul, and mind to make that truth pleasing and desirous and doing an effectual working to bring that person to Christ? So I would probably say, if I had to guess, that the provisionists would say that the preaching of the gospel in itself brings the illumination as an external means of aiding and understanding, but it's not an internal mystical work of the Spirit. And Calvin again says this, an error here is to be avoided, as if Scripture taught that only the power of being able to believe is given to us and not rather faith itself. Again, faith is a gift given to the elect in the irresistible grace, the effectual calling, not just the ability to believe when the gospel is presented. Provisionists claim that when the Bible says faith is a gift granted, it simply means that God grants the opportunity to exercise faith. The opportunity to use your free will to choose is what is granted, not the actual faith itself not the actual believing upon Christ for salvation. It's more God granted an opportunity for you to exercise your faith. Now, Jacob Arminius. Okay, we're talking about Arminius himself here. Traditional Arminianism, which is very close to Calvinism in their understanding of total depravity and total inability. 
classic historic Arminian theology is, John Wesley said, within a hair's breadth of Calvinism when it comes to the doctrine of total depravity and total inability. So what does Jacob Arminius say? He said, I affirm, therefore, that this grace is simply and absolutely necessary for the illumination of the mind, the due ordering of the affections, and the inclination of the will to that which is good. It is this grace which operates on the mind, the affections, and the will, which infuses good thoughts into the mind, inspires good desires into the affections, and bends the will to carry into execution good thoughts and good desires. And notice how Arminius defines grace as more than just an external preaching of the gospel. He says God's grace must work on the mind, the affections, the will, to new and internal change that he calls bends the will to actually desire Christ. Uh, for the sake of time, I've dealt with the Canons of Dort before. I was going to read from the Canons of Dort article um, 11 and 12 in their chapters on um, effectual grace, the Holy Spirit's work in conversion. But last, when it, when it was the um, 500th anniversary of the, of the Synod of Dort, I did a whole series on the Canons of Dort that you can go back and read. So just for the sake of time, I think I'll skip past that. Um, but I do want to go to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession because that's the confession that I hold to. That's the predominantly Reformed Baptist Confession. And on chapter 10 on effectual calling, and by the way, um, it's, it's word for word verbatim uh, from the Westminster Confession. So uh, the Second London Baptist Confession is exactly like the Westminster, so you can look at either one of them. But this is chapter 10 of effectual calling. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, he's pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death into which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And so how does God do this by word and spirit? They list some, some things here. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining to them that which is good. So the confession talks about the mind, the heart, and the will have to be internally, sovereignly changed in order to come to faith in Christ. It's not just a mere external preaching of the word that enables a response, but the spirit has to do a work on the mind, the fallen, unregenerate mind. It's got to open up a heart of stone to make it a heart of flesh, and it's got to renew a will. And then it goes on to say, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So the Second London Baptist Confession does say that this effectual calling comes through word and spirit. And so the Reformed understanding is, yes, there has to be the preaching of the word. Externally, they, you, you want to call it the external gospel appeal. You want to call it the um, um, outward call of the gospel, the law and gospel being proclaimed. That has to be there. That's the means by which God uses. But in addition to that, the Reformed view says the Holy Spirit also has to do an internal work, an effectual work, an irresistible work, directly on the heart, mind, and soul. The provisionist says, no, the first part's all that's necessary. 
the gospel appeals enough to enable a response. Um, let's go to B.B. Warfield again. He's commenting on irresistible grace. B.B. Uh, Warfield says this, Those on whom the Lord bestows the gift of faith, working from within, not from without, of course have faith and cannot help but believe. Again, there has to be a working from without, the external gospel appeal, but in addition to that, a working from within. Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology. Again, if, if you get one systematic theology, you get, get Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. It's probably the best. Um, he says, quote, he's, he's talking about different views of grace, talk, interacting with different views. And, and so he says, according to this view, the truth as a system of motives presented to the human will by the Holy Spirit is the immediate cause of the change from unholiness to holiness. This theory is quite unsatisfactory. The truth can be a motive to holiness only if loved, while the natural man does not love the truth but hates it. Consequently, and here's his point, the truth presented externally cannot be the efficient cause of regeneration. The truth presented externally cannot be the efficient cause of regeneration. Basically, he's interacting with the view that says, and this is kind of what Finney and some of the, those that were in the revivalistic movement would say, is if we could just persuade the will, if we could just um, present truth, if we could just give the gospel appeal, then we can persuade people through the gospel appeal to be saved by just a mere external persuasion that comes through the gospel appeal. And he's saying that theory is quite unsatisfactory because truth presented externally cannot be the efficient cause of regeneration because there has to be, in addition to that, an internal working of the Spirit. Now, let's deal with a passage of Scripture that illustrates this. Acts 16, 14. One of those who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by God. Now, I want to look at the verbs in this passage of Scripture and give us a better understanding of what's going on here. She was a worshiper of God, one who heard us, heard us. Now, that's in the imperfect tense. Now, the imperfect tense in the Greek language is continual action in the past tense. So it could mean she kept on continually listening to Paul. She, she was listening to Paul. She heard him. Uh, he was preaching the gospel down at that river. She heard him. She heard him. She listened to him. But notice that she still was not saved. Continual hearing of the word of God is not enough for salvation. If you just hear the word of God continually, that doesn't necessarily enable a response. What has to happen? What, is, what does Luke record for us happens? Well, it says, as she was listening... Ongoing in the past, the Lord opened her heart. Okay, that's aorist tense. Snapshot, one time action, point in time. God opened her heart. Did she dispose herself to open her heart? No, it's very clear who opened whose heart. The Lord opened her heart. Now, it's interesting. Why does Luke record it as the Lord opened her heart? Why not the Lord opened her ears? The Lord opened her ears. 
Well, we find out earlier with that imperfect verb, she was listening to the gospel appeal. Her ears, in a sense, were open. She was listening, but her heart was dead to what she was hearing. She then attended to or paid attention after the Lord opened her heart. Then she truly paid attention to what Paul was saying. Now, that's an infinitive stressing the result. So the Greek text shows what happened as a result of God opening her heart. She began for the first time after God opened her heart to actually hear what Paul was preaching. She heard before, she was listening, she was tracking with his information, and and nothing happened at the mere gospel appeal. Paul was preaching, Paul was preaching, Paul was talking, she was hearing, she was hearing, she was hearing, nothing happened. At a point in time, the Lord came and had to intervene and opened her heart. The Lord had to do that at a point in time while she was hearing. The Lord opened her heart. And then what was the result? She now actually paid attention to what Paul said so that for the very first time she understood the claims of the gospel and she believed in Christ because we know that she and her household got baptized. It wasn't until... God's sovereign work in her heart that she actually had the capacity to hear and believe. So what we're saying here is just Paul preaching the gospel to Lydia, the gospel appeal wasn't enough to enable a response. She had to have her heart opened with the result that then she could really hear. She could really pay attention. Before she was listening to the gospel appeal, but nothing happening until God opened her heart. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown older commentary, make this claim on this passage of Scripture, quote, showing that the inclination of the heart towards the truth originates not in the will of man. The first disposition to turn to the gospel is a work of grace. Observe here the place assigned to giving attention or heed to the truth. That species of attention was consistent in having the whole mind engrossed with it and apprehending and drinking it in in its vital and saving character. The Lord opened her heart. Now, it's very interesting. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he's meeting with those two disciples, and in Luke 24, 32, um, after Jesus had explained the scriptures to them, they they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? He opened to us the scriptures? So, Jesus opened to them the scriptures and explained it. And then later on in Luke 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, those disciples had read the Old Testament. They had seen God's external word to them. They read it. They understood it. They knew those prophecies. They knew those Old Testament characters. They knew those stories. But what did Jesus have to do? He had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. So the mere word, reading the scriptures, was not enough. Jesus had to do an extra work to open their minds to understand it. Why? Why did Jesus have to open their minds? Wasn't the Bible sufficient? Could not Jesus just have preached to them the Old Testament, and presented the claims of the gospel from Old Testament prophecy. And wouldn't that appeal from Jesus not be enough? 
Why did our Lord have to go an extra step and open their minds? Now back to Lydia. Let's talk about her being a God-fearer because this is where the provisionists kind of come in and they will kind of play games with this passage of Scripture with the idea that she's a a worshiper of God or a God-fearer. So what a provisionist would assert was that she was a God-fearer and she was listening. And since she was listening, um, she was not an unregenerate hater of God from birth. She was a God-fearer. So she, she must have been disposed towards the things of God because she was at a worship service by the river. Um, she was already in some state of preparedness. Um, and so how did God open her heart? Well, they would say through Paul as a human means, assuming that when Paul shared the gospel she had the ability to believe. They would say there's nothing that God is doing to overcome inability to a woman who's already called a worshiper of God. She's a worshiper of God. Now, that just means that she's a Jewish proselyte. She's probably a Gentile woman who was interested in the claims of Judaism, and so she joined the synagogue, and probably in Philippi, there weren't 10 men to actually have a synagogue, and so mainly ladies had to meet down by the river to have a worship service, but that doesn't mean she believed in Christ. That just means that she was a proselyte to Judaism. And so what they would say is that when Paul starts speaking, then she had the ability. She she didn't have the ability before to believe because she didn't know the truth, but when Paul gave her the gospel appeal, then she had the ability. But what would you show you about the verbs? She was listening to the gospel appeal. She was listening to Paul. And she didn't really truly understand until the Lord opened her heart, did an internal work in the heart, not just the mere gospel appeal. How did God open her heart? How did God open her heart internally? Now, I want to deal with Herman Bovink because I think Herman Bovink interacts with some of the Reformed confessions. And if you know anything about Herman Bovink, um, translated by John Bolt in his works, because Everything that Bovink wrote was in Dutch. Very precise wording. Listen to Bovink. Quote, All humans stand condemned before God, are dead in sins and trespasses, and darkened in their understanding. Why some people believe and others do not cannot be explained in terms of human capacities. And here's his key point. Simply, the preaching of the word by itself is not sufficient. The Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament was poured out at Pentecost to regenerate people, to lead them to confess Jesus as Lord and bear witness about Christ. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. The preaching of the word by itself is not sufficient. There has to be an internal work of the Spirit on the hearts and minds of fallen sinners. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, in the Old Testament, the mere preaching of the law came to the Israelites externally on carved stone. When Moses came down from the mountain, they heard the message. But notice in the new covenant promise here, God is going to do an internal work on the heart. Why does it need to go to the heart? Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, I will give you a new heart 
A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What can an unregenerate stony heart not do? Walk in God's ways and obey his rules. So there is an inability there. The unregenerate person cannot obey, cannot desire God, cannot trust in Christ because of the condition of their heart. So when God does an internal work on the heart, that working causes something to happen. There's a change. There's now an ability that was not there before. Bavink also says that the Holy Spirit would lead us to confess Jesus as Lord. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I want to unpack this because I haven't really heard the provisionists deal with this passage of Scripture. Maybe they have. No one can confess Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, does the mere presentation of the gospel appeal enable a sinner to say or confess Jesus is Lord. Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Now, I want to show you inability here. Paul says there is an inability here. No one can say, okay, dunamai. No one has, or actually dunatai. No one has the ability to do what? To confess Jesus is Lord. You know, no one has the ability. No one can do this unless or except there's a may there in the Greek, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me take to you a very clear passage of Scripture that we've dealt with numerous times in these podcasts on understanding Christianity, and that's John 6, 44. And I want to show you the parallel between what Paul teaches here and what Jesus teaches here with the exact same Greek phrases. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me. No one can come to me. Almost the same exact Greek construction as Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord. So they're parallel. No one can say Jesus is Lord. Almost same exact Greek construction. No one can come to me. Okay? Unless... Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's an unless that Jesus says. It's the same Greek construction, may, as it is up there in 1 Corinthians, except in the Holy Spirit, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we have to ask the question, what must happen before a person can confess Jesus as Lord? The Spirit has to do a work. Now, in the Spirit, that's a dative, preposition, dative of instrumentality, which can often be translated through or by the means of or by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack this. In other words, there is an inability to confess Jesus as Lord unless the Spirit does a work to enable or grant the person to confess Jesus as Lord. So the question that the provisionist would probably bring up is, Does by the Spirit or in the Spirit merely mean the preached gospel appeal externally? They would say, yeah, nobody can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit. And we understand the Spirit to be the external preaching of the Spirit-inspired message. 
But this passage of Scripture doesn't say through the, through the gospel appeal. It says directly in the Spirit, by the means of the Spirit. The question is, okay, by what means does the Spirit do that? How does the Spirit grant the ability to confess Jesus as Lord? Is it externally through the gospel appeal, or is it an internal work of the Spirit, again, to the heart, mind, will, to grant a positive response? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay, Lorraine Bettner commenting on this verse, when the gospel of the cross is presented to an unregenerate man, he may have an intellectual knowledge of the facts and doctrines of the Bible, but he lacks all spiritual discernment of their excellence and finds no delight in them. Again, when the gospel appeal comes to an unregenerate person, the inability is not to understand the claims of the gospel like, why can't a person understand the claims of the Quran, but they can't understand the claims of the gospel so as to admit their need to be saved? That's not our definition of total inability. An unregenerate person can believe the claims of the gospel. It's just they hate that. They suppress it. And until God does an internal work to make those claims persuasive in their heart, overcome that deadness, and make, grant them the willingness to come to faith in Christ, they won't come. You may have never read the book, by a man named Linlay Roberts. It came out in the late 80s through Banner of Trust called Let Us Make Man. It's a theology of, of, of mankind, a theology of, of, of man, heart, mind, will, and emotions. And I think he gives, a, he gives a great description of what God does in converting a lost person. This is a pretty long quote, but I think it's... it's I, I like the way it's worded. Quote, First, the will cannot be renewed without the mind being renewed. In other words, we are to give men the information they need for a valid decision. As we convey the information of God's word, the Holy Spirit brings illumination. The Spirit of God enables the sinner to grasp the truth. When he has information and illumination, he has the right knowledge for a sound and wise decision. He might not be inclined to act upon it, however. His desires must be renewed also. When we give him a demonstration of the love of God, the Holy Spirit brings inclination. When information, illumination, demonstration, and inclination come together, the result is motivation. When these things come together, the Spirit of God enables a sinner to embrace Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. Now, the provisionists would agree with the statement up to a point. They would affirm that an unsaved person does need information to be able to make a choice. And they would say that information is sufficient to enable response. They would even say that a person needs illumination, and that illumination would be probably synonymous with the gospel appeal, not a direct work in the heart and mind by the Holy Spirit mystically or supernaturally. It's more an external understanding. What they would not affirm is that there needs to be the Holy Spirit's direct activity on the human will to bring inclination to trust in Christ and motivation to actually place their hope in him. They would say that ability to trust in Christ is already there in fallen humanity because they affirm libertarian free will. But Lindley Roberts goes on to say, no, they need information, 
But beyond that, they need illumination. And beyond that, they need inclination. And then beyond that, they need motivation. And the Holy Spirit's the one that does that, not only externally, but internally on a sinner. Now, let's deal with some Arminian theology because Robert Piccarelli uh, is a leading Arminian. He's wrote Grace, Faith, and Free Will. And let me just give you his um, definition of total depravity and how he understands prevenient grace because I think it's good to hear from an Arminian, just like we heard from James Arminius. Robert Piccarelli says, quote, The unregenerate person is totally unable to respond positively by his natural will to the offer of salvation contained in the gospel. Provisionists will say, I wholeheartedly disagree with you, Mr. Arminian Robert Piccarelli. The unregenerate person is totally unable to respond positively by his natural will to the offer of salvation contained in the gospel. Provenient grace simply means that the Spirit of God overcomes that inability by a direct, keyword direct, work of the heart, a work that is adequate to enable the yet unregenerate person to understand the truth of the gospel, to desire God, and to exercise saving faith. This is a good definition of provenient grace because at least... He defines conversion as understanding the gospel, desiring God, and exercising saving faith. I think sometimes the provisionists seem to limit conversion to merely assenting to the claims of the gospel or admitting your need for salvation. Um, they don't use words like desire Christ or find Christ beautiful or, or to give yourself to Christ in wholehearted trust. Now, I want to deal with traditional Southern Baptists. And this is where the podcast may go a little long, and um, hopefully you'll bear with me, because I want you to hear from written documentation. This is from the book, Anyone Can Be Saved. So this is the traditionalist provisionist book um, edited by um, the, the guys you know, that, that wrote these articles, especially on um, the, the traditional statement. This is from Brad Reynolds' chapter, Commentary on Article 4, The Grace of God. Brad, Brad Reynolds says this, it seems that God created people with the ability to trust. The ability was not lost in the fall, but that ability was so twisted by the fall that we are now unable to trust in God without the grace of God. He gives us grace to all men, but this grace can be resisted. Through him and his work, we're granted to believe as we're drawn by the Holy Spirit and as we choose to repent and believe in him. Now, this is a very confusing statement to me, both grammatically and theologically. What does it mean that man's ability was twisted? How pervasive is that twisted? Now, he does affirm some type of prevenient grace, but it's given to all men and can be resisted. But he doesn't clearly define what he means by that grace. He just says, through him and his work, we're granted to believe. Through him and his work. Okay, what is that? What's the work? What's the nature of the work? Is it merely external? Is it a gospel appeal? How, how does this work of the Spirit overcome the twisted ability? And what does it mean that we're granted to believe? Does it mean that we've only been granted an opportunity to use our free will to believe? Does the drawing of the Holy Spirit actually grant faith? So basically, he has a bunch of premises here that he, that he weaves together. Um, we've, we've not lost the ability in the fall to trust in Christ. So we have that ability. It's not been lost. But that ability has been twisted. But we don't know exactly what twisted means or how twisted it is. And we are unable to trust in God without grace. So there has to be grace necessary to overcome that twisted ability. Don't know exactly what the nature of that grace is. 
But God gives this grace to all people, and that grace can be resisted. And once we're drawn by the Holy Spirit, we're given the opportunity to believe through that drawing, but not the gift of faith itself. Ultimately, we have free will to believe because our ability is only twisted, but to what extent we don't know, and the Spirit can only grant us an opportunity to believe, but doesn't grant us saving faith. So in this statement, the fundamental issue in this argument is there's no clear explanation of the extent of the twisted ability. There's no clear explanation of the working of God's grace to the sinner. There's no clear explanation as to the nature of the granting of faith. Is it merely an opportunity to use our free will? If so, then were we not free before the grace to use our free will? If it wasn't lost, it's only twisted? What does the grace do to us that we could not do before if we had free will and our ability was only twisted? What actually had to be overcome in God's grace? So he uses words like twisted, ability, lack of ability, the Spirit's drawing. These are nice words, but they don't really say anything. They don't talk about the nature of the drawing, the nature of the grace, the extent of the twistedness, the extent of the inability. It's pretty nebulous. Okay, Ronnie Rogers writes this, quote, Scripture affirms repeatedly that God supplies every man with the necessary grace in order for him to be able to exercise faith in Christ unto salvation and eternal life or resist the genuine offer of salvation under eternal damnation. That's a long sentence. The means of this grace enablement includes, but is not limited to, conviction of the Holy Spirit, working of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel. Enabling grace may be referred to at times as calling, conviction, drawing, or opening the heart, among other things, but all refer to God graciously granting sufficient grace for a person to hear and understand the good news, be able to choose to receive God's word of redemption, and by God-given grace exercise faith unto salvation or to choose to remain in sin. Now, he defines this enabling grace as external means. Is the key, he talks about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but is that an internal illumination on the heart? Or is it just the mere outward preaching the gospel? And how does the Holy Spirit do this work? When does this grace that is necessary to enable response come to every man, if it's been given to every man? Does he have that from birth? When's he made aware of this grace? Is grace merely an offer, or is it an actual conferring of a gift on someone through internal means? In some, I think what Ronnie Rogers is doing here is he's, he's defining God-given grace as libertarian free will. So how does the God-given grace help or aid a person to exercise faith? It's really only by the external means. There's probably no ontological change in the sinner that makes that person willing or able to believe because of total inability. And then Steve Lemke, who I think is the most incoherent of the traditionalists, says this. Steve Lemke, The Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling or prevenient grace, leading and enabling the person to respond in faith, resulting in regeneration, justification, salvation. Okay? What's the nature of this grace that enables a person to respond in faith? See, the problem I have with a lot of these writing is they talk about grace, they talk about enabling grace, but they never really talk about the nature of the grace. The one thing I do appreciate about Leighton Flowers is that he clearly defines what the grace is. The grace is the gospel appeal that's sufficient to enable a response. In the actual writings by the traditionalists, provisionists, they don't clearly talk about the nature of the grace. They call it enabling, they call it prevenient, but they talk about the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, um, but 
they really don't give much full treatment on the nature of the grace. Is it an ex? So, so the, the real rub is not as grace necessary. Not as their prevenient grace. Every, like I said before, every evangelical believes in prevenient grace. The question is not, is grace necessary for salvation? The question is, what's the nature of that grace? Is it a mere gospel appeal, a Holy Spirit-inspired message in and of itself that enables a response? Or is the grace a Arminian prevenient grace that's given to all men that can be resisted, but at least it has to be an internal work of the Spirit? Or is it, in the Reformed view, an irresistible, conquering, effectual grace given only to the elect that actually brings a person to spiritual life? What's the nature of the grace? And here's the most incoherent statement I've ever heard from Lemke. He says, quote, Humans can come to salvation only as they are urged to by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's grace provides the necessary and sufficient conditions for salvation. However, God in his freedom has sovereignly decided that he will give a gift of salvation to those who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. If humans respond, he surrounds them with overpowering grace and telling them forward until they come to the point of repentance and faith. Almost sounds Arminian, but not quite. God gives people necessary grace. Okay, necessary grace. He convicts them. He urges them. And if they respond to that grace, God gives more grace, an additional work of what he calls overpowering grace that impels them forward. So it brings up a question. Why does there need to be an overpowering grace to impel a person forward? What would be in their nature that would make them need to have overpowering grace to impel them forward? Is there any type of spiritual or moral inability in the person? Why did they respond in the first place to the grace that was given to them? And why is more grace needed? Wouldn't the first grace be sufficient? Very, very confusing statement. So in conclusion, the provisionist denies any type of moral or spiritual inability to respond positively to Christ in saving faith. They misdefine total inability as the inability to understand the claims of the gospel. That's not the definition. They also affirm that the gospel appeal or the preached word is sufficient to do what it's supposed to do. And what is it supposed to do? Grant an opportunity or enable a person to use libertarian free will to make a choice to accept those truth claims and to admit their need for salvation. Again, conversion, conversion has been truncated down to merely assenting to the facts of the gospel and admitting your need for salvation. The external work of the Spirit in the word, is sufficient to enable response. There does not need to be an internal working of the Spirit to overcome deadness. What do we believe the Spirit has to do internally? The Spirit has to open hearts to respond. He makes alive. He writes the law in our hearts. He replaces our stony hearts with new hearts. He impels our fallen wills to come to Christ. He illuminates our fallen minds to understand the beauty of Christ. He works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He effectually draws the elect to come to Christ and raises them up on the last day. In provisionism, the Spirit's work is limited to external means, primarily. Again, they would say God can do it through dreams and visions and other things, but I'm saying primarily external means as the gospel appeal and the information needed for one to understand the claims of the gospel and to admit their need. In provisionism, there's no internal work. 
where the law is written on their hearts first. There's no irresistible drawing to Christ. There's no internal illumination of the mind directly through mystical supernatural means. There's no internal willing uh, working on the will to come to Christ. There's no opening of the heart to respond. Now, I want you to listen to Charles Spurgeon from his sermon, Sovereign Grace and Man's Responsibility, preached on August 1st, 1858. Here's Spurgeon. Again, the grace of God is sovereign. By that word, we mean that God has the absolute right to give that grace where he chooses and to withhold it when he pleases. He's not bound to give it to any man, much less to all men. And if he chooses to give it to no one, or give it to one and not another, his answer is, is your eye evil because my eye is good? Can I not do as I will with my own? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The only reason why any man ever begins to pray is because God put previous grace in his heart, which leads him to pray. I remember when I was converted to God, I was an Arminian thoroughly. I thought I had begun the good work myself. And I used to sit down and think, well, I sought the Lord four years before I found him. And I think I began to compliment myself upon the fact that I had preservingly entreated of him in the midst of much great encouragement. But one day the thought struck me. How was it you came to seek God? And in an instant, the answer came from my soul. Why, because he led me to do it. He must first have shown me my need of him, or else I should have never sought him. He must have shown me his preciousness, or I never should have thought him worth seeking. And at once I saw the doctrines of grace as clear as possible. God must begin. Nature can never rise above itself. You put water into a reservoir and it will rise as high as that, but no higher if left alone. Now, it is not in human nature to seek the Lord. Human nature is depraved and therefore there must be the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart to lead us to first ask for mercy. As Calvinists, we believe that the Spirit must put extraordinary pressure on the sinful heart. This extraordinary pressure is sovereign, efficacious, irresistible, and actually produces repentance and faith in Christ alone. For the provisionist, this pressure from the Holy Spirit is merely external from the gospel appeal and it's mainly to the intellect to understand the claims of the gospel and to see your needs so that you can admit that you need Christ. So I hope in this podcast you've understood the difference between the reform view of what is the nature of grace and the provisionist view of grace. The question again is not, do you believe in provenient grace? All evangelicals believe in some type of grace that comes before salvation. The question is, what's the nature of that grace? How does that grace operate? What are the means? Is there one means? Is there multiple means? How does the Word and Spirit work together? And so we need to be very careful that we nuance our language so that we understand the other side and understand exactly what the nature of grace is. Well, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have experienced the grace of God in your life through salvation and trusting in Him alone and His sustaining grace in your life as a believer where day by day the Holy Spirit pours out the love of Christ in your hearts to understand the joy that you have in the Lord as your strength. I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And until next time, we are so thankful that 2020 is coming to an end. It's been a crazy year. 
I pray that 2021 is a year of blessings for you and for your loved ones. Let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.